Uh, before we uh, open up God's word and really get into it, um, we just heard what likely were some gunshots a couple of blocks away. Um, we just checked um, the Citizens app to see what that might be. Uh, we've taken some precautions in making sure that doors are locked and that sort of thing, and our hospitality team is uh, trying to make sense of whatever they possibly can. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any police activity out there yet, but this is a reminder for us. Uh, this is actually why we're here. Um, this is why we're in this neighborhood. You know, for some, a sign of violence is a sign of moving. For the church, it's a sign of this is exactly where God has called us. Uh, we want to be in a place um, where we get to experience what Jesus said, that he walks in the valley of the shadow of death with us. In a place of pain and violence, in that kind of world, he showed up and said, I'll suffer with you. Um, and so that doesn't mean that the fear isn't real. That doesn't mean that hearing something like that shouldn't feel normal. We shouldn't act like, oh, it's just another thing. Um, that's a sign of brokenness. That's a sign of pain. That's a sign of trauma. That's a sign of need. That's a sign of sadness and fear. And so before we jump into the word, it seems fitting to just ask for the Lord's protection for whatever that situation is, because even though we know a pinprick of what's going on there, the Lord knows everything. He knows exactly what is going on in the heart of the one committing the violence and of the one who is in the middle of being a victim or is the target of violence. And so let's pray for our neighbors um, before we jump into God's word. Father, I confess that there are so many reasons why I don't want to live here. There's so many lies I believe um, somewhere else would be easier. We don't have to like tell our children the difference between a firework and a gunshot. Um, and yet, as we see throughout Acts, your spirit is the one who tells us where to go. We don't tell ourselves where to go. Your spirit is the one who guides your church, builds your church, and even led your son after his baptism into the wilderness to suffer and face temptation against the devil. And so we just know this is the way of Jesus, that we walk into places of suffering, and yet our flesh, we want to run the other way. Um, and so we do, Father, just ask for your courage and for your reminder and your comfort. But more than that, we pray for our neighbors. We pray for those who feel like there's no other uh, line of defense or resort of action except to commit violence. Um, whether it's this incident or this is just merely a reflection of what's going on more broadly. Father, we pray for those who are the targets of violence. Would you protect them? Would you heal them? Would you help them? And help us to know how to be the true body of Jesus. To be present, willing to suffer willing to seek justice and love mercy in the face of so much confusion and pain. Help us to not be quick to judge. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak so that we might truly learn to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, so we pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, God's people agreed and said, amen. That seems, <laughs> seems fitting we're talking about Sabbath. Uh, to explore something like this, I think is uh, maybe seem a little counterintuitive. Um, in the middle of so much to do in a city, so much to do in our lives that we would talk about rest. But uh, I think one of the things that I'm learning is that if you don't rest well, you can't work well. If you don't actually deeply enjoy the abiding presence of Jesus, what does it mean to walk with him in the valley of the shadow or as a parent or as a colleague? I think all of our understanding of how to live and move and have our being as the Apostle Paul puts it, is predicated upon our understanding of rest. He specifically, what Sabbath is, is an invitation to stop working for a while, 
or just stop working for a minute, for 24 hours in a given week to not work. More broadly, though, it's an invitation to practice the discipline of abiding in God's love. Last week, we considered Jesus' words from John 15. Uh, His invitation is uh, to abide in him so that we'll bear fruit, that the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of godliness, the fruit of the Spirit comes as a result of abiding in him. And we've also been exploring along with John 15 the words uh, and work of theologian Marva Dawn. And through her, we learn there are specific ways and particular things that we need to cease doing on the Sabbath. We ought to, to, in order to truly abide, we should cease working, we should cease worrying, we should cease trying to be God, among other things, because Sabbath is a day to rest from work. And so we stop. That's the command. But it's also Sabbath is a day to rest in Christ. So it's not just the absence of something, but the presence of something. We abide. It's an invitation. Pastor Rich Velotas out in New York City observes in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, that Adam and Eve actually learned to rest from the very beginning of their story. I'd never thought about it quite this way. See, if they were created on the sixth day, Velotas points out, then that means their very first day of life, the seventh day, was a day of rest. Think about that. I often think about work as the first thing I do, and if I do a good job, then I'll get to have a vacation. If I do a good job, then I will get to rest. Can you imagine a new employer saying, hey, welcome to the team, you get the month off, right? We're gonna pay, we're gonna take care of you. We want you to start with rest. It would be revolutionary. This is who your God is. Adam and Eve, welcome to the world. What are we gonna do today? We're gonna rest. Not because you're tired, not because there isn't many things to do, not because there are not thousands of years before us of human civilization to get started rolling, right? But because this is who I am. This is who you are. Avalotus observes that as with God's grace, rest is never a reward, it's a gift. Rest is never a reward, it's a gift. It's a grace. Rest is an expression then of God's love, and therefore the discipline of Sabbath is a discipline of learning to abide in God's love. That's what I'd like to talk about today. The relationship between God's love and your rest. See, the gift of rest tells us a great deal more about the one who is giving rest than the one who is receiving rest. It tells us so much more about who God is and what he thinks we are and the way God sees us. To invite us to rest weekly, not as a reward, but as a gift, is to remind us that we are loved because of who he is, not because of what you do. See, we're loved by God because God loves us. Or to put it another way, God loves you because God loves you. Here's here's what I'm getting at, because this is foundation. This reminds Israel of the nature of God's love this way in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set uh, his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, all of the reasons you think a nation is great is actually not the reason that I chose you. In fact, if that were the spectrum, you'd be in the like absolute last place of that right. What does he say at the end? He says, but it is because the Lord loves you. Did did you hear that? How wonderful is this? God loves you. Why? Because God loves you. This is so frustrating because I'm so used to relationships based on some kind of merit or some kind of system in which I could increase or decrease my affection for someone based on their behavior, or I could earn more affection from someone if I just do a better job. But God loves you because God loves you. Revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards expounded on this idea through his understanding of the doctrine of election. An election is merely God's selection or putting together of his heavenly, fa- heavenly family even before the foundation of the world. 
Edwards says, election is based upon affection, and that affection is its own fountain. In other words, what? God loves you because God loves you. That's who he is. That's who you are. See, Jesus' words to us today, I think, are rooted in this idea. His understanding of love is beautifully circular. It's beautifully circular. Look, look at John 15, verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is saying at least three things to us today, which is nice because when you preach only three things in a sermon, you know that you're doing a good job, right? That's what a sermon's supposed to be. He tells us something about the Father's love, and then he tells us something about his love, and then he tells us how we should respond to that. So he's saying, look at my Father, look at me, and now I want to talk about you. And so we'll order our time together this way by exploring these three things, the measure of love, the declaration of love, and the invitation of love. The measure, the declaration, and the invitation. Let's pray again and ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, as always, if we're going to understand anything today, it's going to be because your Holy Spirit says, here's the truth. It's because your Holy Spirit's going to say, this is what this means. Otherwise, we're going to fumble with it. We're going to misunderstand it. It's going to be a burden too great for us to carry, or we're going to disregard it as a suggestion. And so I pray that you would help me to be clear and responsible with your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to have those ears to hear and those eyes to see so that we would all be obedient and response. So we'd all be built up as brothers and sisters, as your church, that shame would be removed, that pride would be teared down, and that ultimately it would be your love that centers us. And so we pray that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So for many of us, I think God is many different things, perhaps because we were introduced to God in a particular way, um, and he sort of takes that shape, some, some good, some bad. Uh, for many of us, God is a creator, he's ruler, he's provider, maybe he's healer, but I think often these sort of secondary, even tertiary sorts of ideas about God uh, captivate us more than what is most central about him, what is the truest thing about him, is that he's father. The scholar uh, Michael Reeves says that the most fundamental thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is Father. That means everything that he does and is can be understood through a fatherly nature. He creates like a father. He rules like a father. He provides like a father. He loves like a father. Now, we have to be clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about fatherhood, because this can be a very tricky thing for many of us to navigate. Divine fatherhood is not first and foremost about seeing God through the lens of your earthly father. And for some of us, that just is, is an exciting amen, right? Because many of us carry many wounds from our relationship with our father. And in fact, divine fatherhood is less about gender at all and much more about his life-giving power in nature, spasun. He's Trinity, Father, Son, and One. In other words, the Father is known by relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is exactly the way that Jesus chooses to describe what we'll call the measure of love, which he has um, for his disciples today. Look at it again with me, that first third of the verse uh, 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me. We've got to talk about that. I don't know about you, but I don't think about how much the Father loves the Son enough. I'm more curious at how does God love me? How does God love the world? How does God love people, right? I start there. 
But in order to even understand that, to make heads or tails of God's affection for humanity, we've got to understand there's a love that persists within the Trinity, particularly between the Father and the Son. And so naturally we should say, well, what's the Father's love like? What, what is his love for his Son? What is the Father's, the characteristics, if you will, of the Father's affection for his Son? Well, Jesus actually spoke about his Father's love for him a lot. And going back through it this week, I was like, God, Father, forgive me, because I often miss the way your son is, is almost exploding with joy for the way that the father loves him. I think that's a good place to begin. After all, who better to understand the affection of a parent than talking to their children? Terrifying, right? For us earthly parents. If you want to know about a father's love, listen to his son or his daughter, especially in this case, a son who has been with his father for eternity. Jesus' words today, I think, are enough even to look at for our time to understand what he is saying here in John 15. One of the first things I think you learn when you look at the way that Jesus talks about his father's affection for the son is that the father's love is perfect. We'll begin just by looking at uh, 15 verse 9 in John. It says, you see, we can tell a lot just by the way that the father loves the son, just by way of the syntax or grammar that Jesus uses in John 15. When Jesus says, has loved me, that word is what we call the aorist tense. It's one of the most simple and basic forms of Greek structure when talking about the past tense. But it signals something to us. It's a past action. It's perfect. It's whole. It's complete. The father's love for his son never needed to be proven again. It is has loved. That he is the, the father's love is the culmination of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says that love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It never insists on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what does it say? Love never ends. The Father's love is perfect. It's whole. It's eternal. But as we explore this idea, we also see that the Father's love is really generous. So it's not only perfect, but it's generous. See, while Jesus is praying, he speaks of the prodigality or the overwhelming nature of God's generous love toward the Son. He says this in John 17 in what's been dubbed as the high priestly prayer. Jesus says that the glory that you have given me, speaking to his Father and me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you, what? Loved me. The Father and Son share a glory, a unity. He says a oneness throughout all eternity past. But why does Jesus want the world to know that? Why does, why does he so resplendent with this idea of the Father's affection? Because he says, seeing the glory and union and oneness of the Father and Son reveals the love the Father has for the Son. First and foremost, it reveals this ancient glory and this eternal affection. His love is generous, the Son, with all of these things. This is what led the Apostle John to say that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He withheld nothing from his Son. And then Jesus says in John 5, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. The Father's love is generous. He shares and he gives conditional. Jesus seems to be very aware that his ministry on earth is not an attempt to prove something to his dad. Think about that. He's not coming to earth to say, look, dad, look what I can do. 
I'm capable, I'm able, right? He's not trying to make it on his own. It's not an attempt to win his father's affection. It's not an, an attempt to validate himself to his father. That's because he has every confidence that his father's love preceded creation, preceded redemption, preceded resurrection, and preceded restoration. In other words, the father's love for the son is not predicated upon condition or performance or achievement. The father's love is first. Jesus says it this way in the same prayer, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me, when? Before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world, before time, before creation, before incarnation, before the cross, before resurrection, before anything and all things. The Father loved the Son, and His love is unconditional because it precedes all conditions. Are you with me yet? This is really good news. I often love to lavish in the idea that God loves people without condition, but the only reason that that is possible and meaningful is because the Father loves His Son without condition. That's the way He loves. You see, we witness the measure of the Father's love through the Son's own words, but the Father actually has something to say too. The Father speaks it out. So this isn't the Son misunderstanding or misrepresenting his father's love, right? Like why I want my kids to go out in public and just say the good stuff, right? Just say the good stuff. Don't tell them when mom and dad, like when we get frustrated, right? Tell them the happy thoughts of our family. No, the father says, speaks for himself, especially at the son's baptism when he says, this is my who? Beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Think about the significance of the ministry that is before Jesus. He is about to endure great things. He's about to walk through the wilderness. He's about elders, and his father says, my affection is already complete in him. I'm not waiting to see how he performs. I'm not waiting to see how he does. If he follows through with this, the father loves. The son is beloved. It's perfect. It's generous. It's unconditional. The measure of the father's love, therefore, is beyond measure. And this, Jesus says, is how he loves his disciples. You don't need to qualify any of that. He's saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. This is how he loves you, my sister and my brother. So let's take some time to unpack that, because that's really good news for me today. Look back at John 15. We see the second movement of Jesus' message. So have I loved you, also in the past tense. Love that. Jesus is teaching us something fundamental, settling, profound about his love for his people. He's saying, if you want to understand how much I love you, if you want to understand how much I care for you, all you got to do is look at how much this father loves me. Look at that love. That's how much I love. If you've seen the way that the Father loves me, that's how much I love you. If you've seen something true about his affection for me, that tells you the truth about the way I love you. That's what Jesus is saying. The shape of the father-son relationship begins a generous cascade like a waterfall of love. As the father is the lover and head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and head of the church. What's that mean? It means that the father, the father's love for him, for Jesus, it comes first. Therefore, Jesus' love for you comes first. His affection for you is before His motivation is circular. Jesus loves us because of the Father. God loves because God loves. 
Jesus loves us because Jesus, because of him. This is incredible good news because it points to this father's love, that it is perfect, it's generous, it's unconditional. See, the beautiful thing about the gospel is you can never lose what you never earned in the first place. What was given to you before you failed is secure even after you failed. Can I get an amen this morning? That is good for my soul. Let me explain how Jesus' love mirrors the Father. Of course, gospel meaning at least that the announcement that Jesus is Lord and the story of the gospel, that, that Jesus lived perfectly, he died sacrificially, he was buried literally, he was raised victoriously and ascended authoritatively over all things. This is the gospel. And what do we see in, in looking at that announcement and looking at that story, that Jesus' love is perfect, just like his Father's love for him. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus' love for you is perfect. Paul wants us to not understand, you can't get around Jesus' love. It's too wide, it's too long, it's too high, it's too deep, it's perfect, it's whole. In fact, it goes beyond your ability to understand. What does that mean practically? It means all the lies you believe of all of the ways that God no longer loves you or all the reasons why you have given him to not love you are completely a moot point. You can't get around it. You can't get over it. You can't go through it, right? This is the way, his love. this is the nursery rhyme that we're talking about, right? This is ultimately the kind of love that Jesus has for you, it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete, it's in the past tense. Jesus' love is also generous. In a couple of weeks, we'll explore this in more detail, but if you move your eyes down a few verses to John 15, 13, John records that Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, and someone lays down his life for his friends. His death in our place and for our sins, for the renewal of all things, is the greatest expression of love. And it demonstrates his generosity to us. Why? Because all of the riches of heaven are bestowed upon God's people, right? Things that only Jesus deserves, he bestows upon us through Christ. In other words, grace is unmerited love, unmerited generosity to us through Christ. In other words, he's withheld nothing from you. Isn't it true that a lot of our anxiety, maybe I'll just confess, a lot of my anxiety stems from the idea that I think God's holding stuff back from me and waiting for me to prove that I'll be a good steward of it. So my efforts spiritually are meant to say, I'm ready for more. I'm ready for more blessing, right? But what the scriptures teach us is he's not waiting. He doesn't withhold from us. He is generous in his love towards us. He is not withholding in relationship as some carrot to get you to obey. He loved you so much that he told you to rest your first day. That's how much he loves you. It's generous. Lastly, we see, just like the Father's love, Jesus' love is unconditional. Though Jesus' love for us is perfect, it's generous, we still may be prone to believe that we've got to earn it. But the apostle writes these encouraging words to a man named Titus. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, hear this, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Done, not because of even your potential. Do you know that? He's not going, wow, you could really become something. I just need to pour a little love into your heart and you'll really become something. That's not what he is thinking. 
Not even because we're a special creation. Millennials, that's really important. It's not because you're a unique snowflake, right? Praise God. Rather, what we loved, because Jesus loves. Jesus loves you. Notice what, what Paul says, according to his mercy. So in, in other words, his love is motivated, motivated by his character and nature. So, so when Jesus wakes up every day, he's like, should I love them? Yes, because that's who I am, right? I get it. He does it you. He is not waiting to love you. You wake up and you're loved. I wake up and I'm loved. That's what it means. It's unconditional. It's unconditional, not because no matter what you do, you won't lose it, but rather it is unconditional because his love, love was not bestowed on you because of you in the first place. Jesus' love is unconditional. The, this is so key for us to understand because we swim in an environment and a culture of conditions. We could lose anything in a moment's notice, right? You don't pay your mortgage, that's the condition by which you will lose your home. You don't pay rent, that is the condition by which if you don't meet, you will lose something. Even in our earthly relationships, there is sort of this unspoken condition. If you act a fool in public, this relationship may not last, right? There's no conditions with Jesus' affection for his people, just like the Father has no conditions for his love for his Son. Jesus still says that he loves us. What I, what I love about this is that Jesus does all of this loving for us throughout all of history, and he still voices it. He still says it. Right, depending on your personality, right? You may be like, you love just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, right? For some of us, it's a little harder to get those words. To use words to form sentences of affection is a little bit harder. You're like, well, I'm doing all these things for you, aren't I? So, of course I love you. Jesus does both. I love this. He voices his affection. What does he say? So have I loved you. He declares his love. And this, again, is, is, is powerful because it's vulnerable. To declare our love is to expose us to rejection. Why? Because we don't control the response. Similarly, Jesus declares his love for us that it's perfect, it's generous, it's unconditional for us while knowing we would be sorely imperfect, we would be greedy for more even though he is generous, and though every day we would give him conditions or reasons to not love us. He still speaks it out into eternity in the face of knowing exactly how poorly we would love in return, that it would not be reciprocated, Jesus declares his love for us anyway. So have I loved you. And in our response to Jesus' love, we might respond to it with pride or shame. And, and in different seasons of life and situations, I think we may dabble in one or the other of these. See, in pride, we can behave entitled towards God's love. In other words, we can misbehave and disobey and do as we please ultimately and just go what? God's going to love me. God's going to love me. In fact, why are you guys all getting hot and bothered about the way that I'm acting? Because God loves me, you should too. Right? We, we grow entitled to this affection and so we behave however we desire. In other words, we focus on, the und we, we focus on this love aspect of what Jesus is saying and misunderstand what he is really getting at. In this view, love is wrongly seen as an invitation to sin. God's already forgiven us, so we can do as we please. That's pride. That's pride, and it's a misunderstanding of love in general. Or we might, in shame, we can wear his love like a burden, knowing that we will never deserve his love and constantly despise ourselves. 
In other words, we focus on this undeserved nature of his affection, causing us to always see ourselves as bad, believing that Jesus' love is only received through self-loathing. Yes, God, I wake up and I know I don't deserve this again. And we can sort of browbeat ourselves and we can, we can be to hate ourselves. The burden of his love, it doesn't free us. In other words, we see love as an invitation to hate ourselves because we think we'll, we'll hold on to his love by continuing to agree how much we don't deserve it. That's shame. But see, God's love is not an invitation to pride. God's love is about God, not about you. And God's love is not an invitation to shame. God's love is not about you, but God's love is what? For you. So what is his invitation? It's rest. It's rest. So we've taken time to articulate the love of the Father and the love of the Son so that we can respond to rest. Look at how Jesus concludes his thought in verse 9. Abide in my love. Don't earn it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't try to prove that you were a good kingdom investment every day. Abide in it. If you remember that word, abide, it's repeated throughout this passage. It conveys the idea of ceasing or remaining, or standing fast, to be unhurried, to pause. Biblically, it's connected to this theme of Sabbath, a weekly 24-hour rest. Last week, we learned that we need to cease some things in order to rest, like work, worry, trying to be God. That's how it begins. But the depth of biblical rest is only possible when we actually trust, truly believe that we are loved. You see, true rest is only possible when we know and abide in this love. Think about it. We are meant to rest in marriage because of this covenant of love we've made with one another. It's meant to provide this space of rest. We're meant to rest in paternal relationships because we know that we are loved familially and we're within the context of that relationship. We are therefore meant, likewise, to rest in God because he loves us. However, these earthly expressions often give us pause. They've taught us to not trust that we can rest to not trust that we can count on this relationship or these people. In other words, we have a lot of evidence that that love of marriage or of family is not perfect, it's not generous, and it comes with conditions. These loves, therefore, cannot be ultimate. These loves ultimately are not meant to teach us to distrust God's loves. These loves are meant to top perfect. A greater love waits for us. Even in wonderful marriages, in wonderful families, they are not perfect, they are not generous, and they are not unconditional love. We only find the depth of our being love that only comes from Christ. Another way of putting this is we're not meant to look at God through our earthly relationships. We're meant to understand our earthly relationships by being grounded and abiding in Him. In part two of this book that we've been exploring, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, Marva Don lays out five different types of rest which are possible because of love and ought to be practiced in every Sabbath. She talks about spiritual rest, physical rest, emotional rest, intellectual rest, and social rest. Another way to think about this kind of rest, about resting in love, is, is that love makes you safe. And we only rest when we're safe. We only rest when we have this peace. In, in Jesus' love, then, we find ultimate safety, and therefore we find ultimate rest. In each of these expressions, then in Christ's love, my spirit is safe so I can rest spiritually. My body is safe, so I can rest physically. My emotions, my mind, my place in this world are safe, and so I can rest. 
So in Christ, on the Sabbath, I find rest in all of these ways. And Don explains, to rest utterly in the grace of God is the foundation for holistic rest or rest in all of these ways. I just would like to reflect briefly on three of these aspects that she lays out and simply ask, how does Christ's love invite us to rest spiritually, physically, and socially? How does Christ's love that he's just communicated here in John 15, how does that then cause us once a week to take stock of his affection and to rest spiritually, physically, and socially? First, the love of Christ invites you to spiritual rest. Rabbi Abraham Heschel describes that Sabbath rest is simply peace. Once a week, we are invited to embody in the flesh, on our calendars, and in our hearts, the rest that Jesus has purchased for you on the cross. It's not merely an ethereal idea that sharpens our thinking about this doctrine, but we are actually at peace. You are not at war with God. God is not at war with you. Peace is the nature of our relationship. We explored this a few months ago in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual rest is about taking an inventory of our disposition of, on peace every week. Spirit, about my lovability. What is conflicted and unsettled in my soul? Am I settled in my salvation? Don writes, when we celebrate the resting of Sabbath keeping, we become immersed more deeply in the peace of God. This awareness that all barriers have been broken down. Remember when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between God and man? Every Sabbath, we celebrate that, that we have union and peace with God. Weekly, we're invited to quiet the wars at work within our own righteousness, the hustle that we do for our own holiness, to remember that we have peace with God, which is never going to be in conflict again. Peace with God makes peace possible everywhere else. And the good news is that your soul can be at rest. Your soul can take a day off and can rest and abide in his love. The love of Christ also invites us to rest physically. And this is deeper than just not moving, right? There are so many messages that we receive in and through the week that tell us that our bodies are bad. Some of these messages have come from Christians who shame bodies sexually, telling women in particular that their bodies are a threat to male holiness. Other messages come from the prevailing culture telling us that there's a certain kind of physique which is appealing and others are not. Tell What does Jesus say? Jesus does not tell us these kinds of things at all. He tells us rather that our bodies are good. How do we know this? Well, the Son took on flesh. The Son took on a human body. In other words, our bodies are safe. They're not dangerous and ugly. Sabbath helps us Specifically, we can take care of our bodies. We can give our bodies a day to just rest and sleep in. You don't have to set the alarm once a week. We can give our bodies dignity by listening to what they need and nourish them and take care of them while not deifying them and venerating them and believing that our worth is attached to them and how they look. Don even cites research that indicates that our bodies are on a 25-hour cycle 
Dr. Juan Carlos Lerman does his work at the University of Arizona and suggests that we need unique physical rest, he says, once every seven days and rest our bodies for longer than on other days in order to catch up with our natural cycle of time. Your body was created by Jesus and given dignity by Jesus through the incarnation. It's worthy and it's designed for more than work. You are loved. Your body is loved so you can rest your body. The love of Christ also invites us to rest socially. One of the unique challenges that we face, I think, in a digital age is that we face the world's problems and challenges all the time. In fact, we can easily judge ourselves or others if we don't know what's going on everywhere all the time. In some ways, we are always experiencing this social fatigue from knowing all the particularities of violence, starvation, of racism, from Chicago to East Africa to Colombia to your friend across the street. And seeing all of this, we, we do one of two things. We either abdicate our responsibility to love our neighbors, meaning just like it's hopeless, whatever. There's too many problems in the world. Or we constantly are carrying way too many burdens. Believing that we have to lament and enter into every pain that Twitter shows us. Every problem that we were reminded about on Facebook. And our souls can't handle it. You were never meant to. His love, therefore, reminds us every Sabbath that, that he is the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, by his compassion, by his goodness. So Don says, to keep the Sabbath causes us to rethink more seriously about the command of Jesus to love our neighbors. We actually have space. We stop being angry about everything all over the world, and we actually have space within our soul to love our neighbor as ourselves. This does not mean that we should not care. It means that we should think realistically about who God has called us to be and who our neighbors are. See, particularly because rest reduces our hostility towards our neighbors. We don't make our neighbors answer for problems that we learned about on the dark, deep recesses of the web. We actually see the incarnation before us. We see the dignity of humanity whatever ethnicity, whatever socioeconomic class, whatever story, we see an image bearer next to us who we must be curious about and love and help and care for. This is why I think Sabbath is a great day to stay away from social media. It's a great day to even stay off the internet. See, we rest socially, not by removing ourselves from society, but by taking one day to rethink what is my place in this world. How does Jesus hold all things together and how is he calling me to be faithful to my neighbor? See, when we rest socially, we then re-engage with more love and more like Christ. In Christ, then, we're made safe in a world and we relearn to be peacemakers like Jesus. See, the measure of love is without limit because the Father's love for the Son is perfect. It's generous. It's unconditional. And by looking at that love, Jesus says what? This is how I have loved you. He declares this love that he has willingly to, willing to speak and to demonstrate his affection for us that came long before, as my mother would say, you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye. Lastly, this invitation of love is neither an invitation to sin nor to despisement. It's an invitation to rest. You can spiritually rest. 
You can physically rest. You can socially rest. Church, that's how much he loves you. He loves you so much, he's not waiting for you to do something for him. He's waiting for you to just rest. Can you imagine that? That one of the ways we prove that we are his disciples is we rest. That's wonderful. I've got to tell you, through this series, I've started to look forward to my day off more than I ever have. Because it's a day that I anticipate seeing things that I'm blind to through the week. Being reminded of stuff that is true about me, that I act like it's not through the week, that is true of my neighbor, that I disbelieve through the hustle of a week. See, what Sabbath does for us is it gets us clear about the truth. It gets us clear about beauty, and it settles our soul in love. And so this week, let's remember, the Father loves his Son. And the Son says, that's how much I love you. So you, my sister and brother, you can rest. You can abide. God loves you because God loves you. It's safe. Your spirit is safe. Your body is safe. Your place in this world is safe because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are prone to neglect the most fundamental aspect of the gospel, that we are a people who are loved by God. And so we pray that where we are prone to sin through entitlement and prone to shame through despisement, would you free us of this burden today? Not because we have a really good plan tomorrow, but because your word is living and active and has done this work today. Clothe us in your righteousness. Remind us of your love so that our hearts would be truly at rest, so that our spirits would be at rest and our bodies and our place in this world would be at rest because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.